You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Good morning, Cities Church. And to our moms, young and old, aspiring and present, young kids in the house, grown kids, happy Mother's Day. This is an important occasion for us as your pastors to say happy Mother's Day because we're all married to mothers and we're all the sons of mothers, and uh, we think Mother's Day is one of the most important days of the year, far more important in our perspective than, than Father's Day, to honor our moms and what they do, and especially during the season of stay-at-home Minnesota, of lockdown. Uh, I think almost the uniform testimony is that this is a more difficult time on homes and on moms, even in the great opportunity it is to be around each other like we are. So moms, we love you. And don't let the world convince you that you have anything other than the greatest calling in the world. So we come this morning back to the Psalms. And as we know, moms, people of City's Church, dads, uh, hopefully we all know, kids, that the Psalms are amazingly relevant and they are a gift to the church. It's a gift that keeps on giving now for 3,000 years. The Psalms are for sickness and in health. And the Psalms are for good days and bad days. They're for the best times, for the worst times. And this is why it's such a great kindness to us as the church that God had us queued up to go right into the Psalm series during the pandemic, that we finished up the Ten Commandments. And then the next Sunday, we're supposed to go into the, the rest of Exodus 20, uh, but we could just skip ahead to the summer plan to jump back in at Psalm 13. And now this is our eighth week in a row through the Psalms. And uh, that's been a sweet thing. The Psalms are enduringly relevant from age to age, from the height of God's covenant people, his first covenant people, his temporal kingdom uh, 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, from that height to the depths of exile 500 years later, to Jesus' own day 2,000 years ago and his final week of his life, in the last week of his life, Jesus was singing and rehearsing the Psalms. And the Psalms are relevant now, 2,000 years later, and all the more in 2020, in the midst of a global pandemic. These are good days to be Christian, because we have hope. And these are good days to be in the Psalms. And so we turn to Psalm 20 here this morning, which I love and I'm so excited about. It's, it's an unusual Psalm in that this is a Psalm for battle. It's for help on a day when the army is riding out. And so this is a, it's a sober and powerful moment in the life of God's people as a nation. Life and death are at stake. The men are about to ride out and some will be killed. This is a kind of crisis moment. They're going out to kill or be killed. And so imagine the setting. This is the original setting of Psalm 20. The king and his army are dressed and ready for battle. They get their swords in their hands. The horses and the chariots are ready to ride out. And so the people all gathered together, they're sending out the army to fight for the nation. And so what do they do? This amazing thing. They worship. They reach for a psalm as a kind of liturgy to ask for God's help and his favor as the army rides out. This is a battle psalm. And so first, the people speak. This is verses one to three, and they pronounce a blessing on the king, the king who is ready to lead the army. And the you, Y-O-U, the you there in verses one to five is the king. 
It's a singular you. This is about the king. The people are extending a blessing. They're speaking to the king for God to hear and asking for a blessing on the king. They want him to be blessed and kept by God. They want him to be protected from any threat. They want God to provide for the king's desires and for his dreams of expanding and defending the kingdom and God's own renown. And then in verse six, a single voice rings out. And this might be the king, or it might be the choir master or the worship leader. And now the king, instead of being addressed as you, the king is spoken of in third person as God's anointed, as him, as the king. In verses six to eight, we've seen this before, back in Psalm six, other places. Verses six to eight are this surprising burst of confidence. All these declarations in the first few verses of may God do this, may God do that, these petitions, these may petitions, now turn to these bursts of God will. There's confidence that God's gonna answer. He's gonna keep his promises. The Lord saves, the Lord will answer in verse six. And then finally, verse nine, the whole congregation speaks again, and now they speak directly to God in prayer, and they say, oh Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. So here's our plan this morning. Having given that little overview of Psalm 20, here's the plan. We're gonna start by reading this Psalm in its original setting in the days of King David. And then we're gonna move forward half a century when Israel's in exile to read the Psalm with the prophet Daniel. Then we're gonna move forward another half century to Jesus' own life when God is among us in the person of Christ. And we're gonna read this Psalm with Jesus in the garden on the night before he was crucified. And then finally, we're gonna move it forward 2,000 years to today, to 2020, to Cities Church in a global pandemic, both for us as individuals and for us as a church. So first, to fill out that opening scene, imagine with me now specifically King David. He's on his throne. This is at the very height of his kingdom. And the people gathered together on the day of battle. The army is ready. The horses, the chariots, the swords, and a horn sounds. And a hush comes over the whole gathered crowd of the soldiers and the civilians. And a choir master steps forward to call the people to worship. And then first, the people speak together and they declare a blessing on the king. First, they're gonna ask for his protection. So let's read together verses one to three. This is a blessing to the king for God to hear, asking for God's protection of the king as he rides out in battle. They say, may the Lord answer you, king, in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you May he send you help from his sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. And then you'll see a little word there, selah. That means give it a little moment of silence. Let it sink in. Don't move on quickly to the next stanza yet. Let it have a moment of silence. And then after the silence, the people speak again, they resume the blessing, but this time they're asking for God's provision 
as the king not only seeks to fend off threats, but as he goes on the offensive to expand the kingdom for the sake of God's name. So look at verses four and five. May he grant you your heart's desire, O king, and fulfill all your plans. May we shout with joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. And then there's that change of speaker that we talked about. And maybe it's the king himself. It could be the king talking about himself in the third person. Maybe it's the choir master, the worship leader. But this is important here. Having heard the people's blessing in verses one to five, now this single voice speaks out with a burst of confidence. And the maze, may God do this, may God do that, may God do this, of verses one to five, now become the wills. God will do this. We are confident in God's answer, confident in his deliverance. And so the singular speaker says this, verses six to eight, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Verse seven, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. And then finally, I change the speaker again, this last stanza, verse nine, the people speak again. And this time, the people appeal directly to God himself. This is a prayer now in verse nine, rather than a blessing, like verses one to five. But instead of asking directly for their, their victory as a nation, the people instead ask for their king to have victory. It's really interesting. Verse nine, O Lord, save the king. And then they say to God, with the king listening, remember they're praying, so they say this to God with the king overhearing it, may the king, may he answer us when we call. There's an extra layer there. So there, there are four clear stanzas here in Psalm 20. There's verses one to three, that ends with the Selah. Then there's verses four and five, and then we got the change of speaker in verses six to eight with that burst of confidence. And then finally, the people speak again and finish it out in verse nine. And so for David, just imagine here, King David, in this first stanza, his day of trouble at the height of Israel's kingdom is not every day. Not every day is a day of trouble. Days of trouble for David are specific days, specific threats, specific instances, whether that's offensive or defensive for him as a, as a king, as a nation. He's the head of the nation as the king. And the sacrifices and offerings here in the first stanza are about the king being in right relationship with his God. Whether that's the regular sacrifices of religious life in ancient Israel, or whether those are special offerings and sacrifices that are offered before battle, that, that probably is the case, before they ride out, the king and his sacrifices are speaking about God and the king being in right relationship. The people bank on their king being in right relationship with God. Because if God blesses him, the king, the blessing comes to the people. But if God destroys or curses the king, the people will feel that curse and destruction as well. And so for David, his heart's desire in that second stanza is for the spreading of God's kingdom. 
He wants to spread God's name and God's fame as the kingdom of Israel spreads. And the calling of God's nation as his special people is to expand and advance God's name among the nations. And in doing so, the people advance and expand and are given favor in the meantime. A key theme here among two is the concern for God's name. It's three times here specific in the Psalm. Verse one talks specifically about the name of God. And then again in verse five, and then again in verse seven, even in this battle psalm, that the concern for God's name is central. God's name, we might say, is a token of his self-revelation to his people. The fact that they know his name, as we saw in Exodus 3, is a function of him revealing himself to them. He initiated toward them. He chose them. He's offering himself to them. He tells them, I am who I am. I'm Yahweh, the one who is. He reveals his name to them, and the mention of his name signals the special relationship the people have with their God who has initiated toward them to reveal themselves to him, to them in a way that pagan nations don't know apart from Israel's witness. And so the calling of God's name signals not only that they know God, but that they know the kind of God he is, And he's the kind of God who is ready to answer, the kind of God who listens to prayer, who's ready to fulfill his covenant with his people. That's the other theme about God answering. So stanza three then, as we've said a few times, is the burst of confidence, which is so amazing and unusual. And we saw that back in Psalm six as well, as the maze, M-A-Y-S, the maze of the petitions become the wills of God's promises. In fact, this time of trouble is, and and that this time of trouble became a time of prayer for the people, is the first taste that God is at work, that God is on the move here. When the speaker says in verse 6, Now I know, having seen the gathering of the people, having heard their prayers, their expressions of faith, now I know that God will answer. God's already at work. He's already moving. When his people pray, they're not just praying that he would work. Their prayers themselves are evidence that he's already at work. He's already moving. And so God and his name, they declare here in Psalm 20, is their trust. Chariots and horses, which David has. David's wealthy. He's got a strong kingdom. He has these means. But the people declare, we're not trusting in our means. We're not trusting in human power, in human efforts. We know that they will fail, but we're trusting in our God. We're trusting in the name of the Lord our God and his desire to advance his name and our desire to rise and join him in that and that he'll make us to stand. It's just a matter of time. And then finally, stanza four, one last petition, to save the king and that he, the king, having been answered by God, verses one and six, would answer his people when they call him. This is, this is the curveball at the end of the psalm. What it means is that the people see that their salvation is bound up with the salvation of their king. He is their mediator, so to speak, as their king. As the king goes, the nation goes. And so the psalm begins with the people speaking blessing to the king for God to hear, And then the psalm ends with the people praying to God for the king to hear. 
But now let's travel forward to Daniel. 500 years. Is this just a psalm for a kingdom at its height when they have chariots and horses? How does this psalm, how is it read in exile? If the psalms are enduringly relevant, they are going to be just as relevant for Daniel. So imagine Daniel. Daniel's in his room in Babylon. He's an old covenant believer. He's in exile. He's far away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's been destroyed. And Daniel's kneeling in his room. Perhaps he's kneeling in the very space by the window where they're going to see him praying, breaking the king's order, and they're going to throw him in the lion's den not long after this. And Daniel's praying, and he's longing for the restoration of God's kingdom. He was born in Jerusalem. He remembers Jerusalem. He remembers the temple that lies in ruins now. And Daniel perhaps opens to Psalm 20. Or better, he memorized Psalm 20. And he's rehearsing Psalm 20. And how is it landing on some, someone like Daniel, who's in exile? As Daniel prays, there is no singular you over the people. There's no king. There's no active king in Israel. But that doesn't mean that the psalm has expired. And perhaps Daniel feels that vacuum of there not being a king, and he feels the other losses. And so he prays the way he does in Daniel 9. You familiar with how Daniel prays in chapter 9 of Daniel? He appeals to God in very much the same way Psalm 20 does. He appeals to God's allegiance to his own name. Let me, his own name. Let me read you verses 17 to 19 of Daniel chapter 9. Daniel's praying a prayer on behalf of the people in exile for restoration. He says, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake. O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So Daniel appeals to God on the basis of God's name being known among the nations. For Daniel and for the exiles, their day of trouble in stanza one is every day. For them, the temple lies in ruins. Offerings and sacrifices have ceased Daniel prays on behalf of a people that is devastated. Their city has been destroyed. They are in exile in a foreign land. They are utterly dependent on God's mercy. For Daniel and the exiles, his heart's desire is restoration. Their plans and petitions are very modest to get home and to rebuild. But even in exile, Daniel and the people can feel a burst of confidence as they lean utterly on their covenant-keeping God. They do not have the chariots and horses that King David had. They know desperation in a way that King David and his people never did. But they have their God. And, just, and God is just as committed to his name 500 years later in exile and his covenant as he was 
before under King David. Still, it is only a matter of time before God acts. He has not forgotten his people and he will not ignore his name for long. So Daniel, even in exile, has confidence in God's deliverance. Even in such desperation, when restoration of the kingdom of Israel seems utterly unlikely, humanly speaking, Psalm 20 offers hope and confidence. But what if we move forward another 500 years? What about Jesus? The long-promised heir to David's throne, the anointed one. God himself has finally come. Imagine Jesus on the night before he died and he prays for God's rescue. He prays that God would keep him faithful and that God would raise him from the dead on the other side of the cross. And David, the son of David, sees himself there in Psalm 20 as the anointed one, as the singular you that's talked about in the Psalm. For Jesus, his day of trouble, his hour, as he called it, has come. Help comes from heaven in the form of an angel that ministered to him, we hear in Luke 22. Jesus looks to no other sacrifice than the one he himself is about to offer once and for all to rescue God's people the next day. For Jesus, his heart's desire is crystal clear to glorify his Father. He prays in John 17, 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that he may glorify you. Jesus looks to the joy that was set before him and to be seated at God's right hand. He has given himself like none other before him or after to his Father's name. John 17, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. And so Jesus offers his own petition in the garden. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. So even as grave as this hour is for Jesus, even as he sweats drops of blood, he is not without confidence. And we, we see the bursts of confidence the next day uh, in all places at the cross itself. He says to the thief on the cross, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And then he prays at the end, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He trusts in his Father, not human means of power. Jesus has no chariots, he has no horses, he doesn't call on 10,000 angels, he has no swords, in fact, they had one, and Peter drew it and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest, and then Jesus said to him, no more of this. So for the moment, this cross will look like a defeat, an utter defeat for Jesus, but it's only a matter of time. Three days until vindication, and God answers him by raising him from the dead. And so Jesus, even at the cross, has confidence in the face of sin and death, the ultimate foes, that God will deliver him. But finally, what about us today in 2020? What about us as God's people now, as Christians, as a church? 
As God's covenant people, we gather in worship, and our singular you is Jesus, who is utterly worthy, who's seated at God's right hand. In him, we know that God hears our prayers in our great high priest, and God answers. We know that all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. This is a psalm, Cities Church, not just for David, not just for Daniel, not just for Jesus. This is a psalm for us. This is a psalm for you. For us, our day of trouble, in some sense, is every day, as Jesus talks about in Matthew 6. Though it's not exile, and it's not the day of the cross. And yet now, here in 2020, we find ourselves in the midst of a global pandemic. These are unusual days for us, unusual times of trouble. And we're not able to gather by hundreds here on Sunday mornings, which is a difficulty and distress. And this is a day of trouble for our city and for our nation and for our whole world, like few or any of us have seen in our lifetime. And in some sense, they have trouble for our church as well. And so we ask, like Psalm 20, we ask for God's protection, that he protect our homes, our children, our neighbors, our businesses, protect our church. What about verse 7? Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. What are our chariots and our horses today. Our trust in this war on the virus is not, as Christians, in a vaccine to come. Our trust is not in enough hospital beds and ventilators. Our trust as Christians and as a church is not in stimulus money. It's not in social distancing performed perfectly. We do not necessarily reject those means. We don't throw away chariots and horses that God has given us as a gift. In fact, we even, asks, we even ask for the ones we don't yet have. We ask for a vaccine. God do it, God give it. But we don't trust in those means. We trust in God. And we don't just trust in God, but as the Psalm says, the name of the Lord our God. We trust in Jesus. And so we pray like this. We pray, Jesus, for your name's sake, strengthen us and strengthen our church in these days. Make your name shine in the midst of global pandemic and distress. Call us all to repentance, Christians included, us first. Begin with your household and then work in us a sweeter, a richer, a purer treasuring of you and of all that you offer us by faith. And brothers and sisters, what confidence we can have, even, perhaps especially, in such days. We know that our helper now is the divine spirit, whom we have dwelling in us, and we know what the offering is once and for all in the offering of Jesus himself. And for us, what's our heart's desire? And consider that in these days. What is, what's your heart's desire? And has the pandemic refined your heart's desire in any way. And for us as a church, our heart's desire is to make Jesus known and enjoyed in these twin cities through making disciples at distance and at depth, through baptizing new Christians and teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded us, through multiplying our groups 
and through planting new churches? What about stanza three in that burst of confidence when our maze becomes the wills? Brothers and sisters in Christ, City's Church, God hears your prayers. God hears our prayers. He will answer. He will give us all we need for what he's called us to in his perfect timing. God and his name is our trust. Our chariots and horses, and God has given us some amazing gifts. A building, which we haven't used <laughs> in over two months. Our finances, God has been so kind to us as a church financially. Our theology and teaching, which we make much of and hold in great high regard how important the teaching and the theology is. And our pastors, a happy team of pastors, our community group leaders, who have been amazing in this time of crisis and pandemic. And Pastor Nick and the band, we miss them so much, and we love these little recordings of Pastor Nick and Hilly singing for us with the guitar in these days. And our people. City's Church, what is so amazing about this church is our people. These are amazing means, but these are not our trust. They are important and secondary at best, but God and his faithfulness to his name is our comfort and our security in these days and at all times. And one thing that God is showing us among countless other things in these days is that God is a God of a people called the church. It's not mainly about a building, not an event. It's not about 75 minutes a week gathered together when the music's joyful and it's great to see everybody. God is a God of all 168 hours of the week. And hopefully we all are learning in these days the preciousness of other people and relationships and social nearness and handshakes and hugs. How much have we taken these for granted? And perhaps especially among the people of God. Our God is not only a God of persons, but a God of people, a special people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession he calls the church. And so City's Church, we are a people. We're not a building. We're not an event on Sunday mornings. We are not a team of pastors. We're not merely a theology or a way of teaching. We are a people. And we are not alone as God's people in our city and in the world today. And even as precious as these people are becoming to us through our absence in these days, we dare not trust in people. City's Church, we trust in the name of the Lord, our God.